In here, uh, we started a new series a couple of weeks ago uh, called In Christ. And um, uh, that is based on the repetition of that term, that phrase in the book of Colossians over and over and over again. And uh, Paul will say over and over again that this is where we find our identity in the, in the supreme king uh, whose name is Jesus. Last week, we, we looked at the Christ hymn, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It's in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And we saw there that Jesus is the, the preeminent or, or supreme king of the universe. Uh, we, we saw that he has existed from eternity past, and uh, he is the creator of everything. Everything we can see, everything we can't see, uh, he owns it all, he holds it all together, he rules it all, he is the supreme king of the universe. And not only that, we saw that this supreme king of the universe humbled himself, became human, died in our place on the cross to reconcile us uh, and, and really all of creation back to God. The hymn is one of those gems in the Bible that, that teaches us who King Jesus really is. And the truths of that hymn are foundational for what Paul wants these young Christians in Colossae to understand. They, the, these truths lay a, a groundwork for both the uh, offense and the defense of the ministry and, and mission of the church. So everything that we've looked at in these last three weeks has been a part of the intro uh, to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, today's passage sort of bridges that. By some, it's uh, seen as a, a wrap-up to his introduction before he gets into the, the real teaching and um, uh, narrative parts of his letter. Others view this section that we're going to be in this morning as sort of a second intro into that more narrative instructional section. Either way, what we're going to be looking at this morning clearly builds on where we've been the last three weeks. And if, if you've missed those, uh, one of the great things about uh, having our services online is you can go back and catch up with, with where we've been, and, and I would encourage you uh, to do that. Uh, before we jump into uh, the passage that we're going to be in uh, today, uh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Uh, that you would uh, reveal to our minds and, and our hearts, especially, uh, what it is that, that we need to learn from these words this morning. Words penned a long, long time ago, but, but still uh, living and, and active and, and able to penetrate right to the core of our being. We pray that you would do that. We pray that we would be changed, that we would leave here this morning different than when we came in as a result of having engaged uh, with you and uh, these words this morning. Amen. Amen. 
Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to begin at uh, verse 24. That's on page 950 of those Bibles that the ushers handed out. Uh, and uh, as I said, we're going to begin at verse 24, and we're going to end uh, in chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, a little different than normal, though, this morning, instead of uh, working our way uh, through this section, sort of verse by verse, um, you know, one after another, um, I want us to to explore uh, the themes that Paul addresses in this section. I, I think it's going to be a better way for us to understand uh, what he's uh, saying. Um, we're going to look at all the verses. We're just going to do it in a little bit different uh, way. And part of that is because this is one of those famous sections of, of Paul's run-on sentences that when we translate it into English... Uh, can can be difficult. So in the passage in front of us this morning, there's two main themes with a couple of subpoints to each one. And those two themes or two topics that, that Paul uh, writes here are, uh, A, uh, Paul's divine calling. In other words, what he understands to be God's assignment for his life. That's, that's the first one. And secondly, how that divine calling intersects with the lives of the Colossians and our own lives as well, right? Um, So we're going to first look at Paul's divine uh, assignment or his calling here. At the beginning of his letter, Paul introduced himself to the Colossians uh, as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Right? That's, he says that right out of the gate. And in our passage today, we see Paul say something similar uh, in verse 25. He says, I became a servant of the church according to the charge I received from God for you in order to complete the word of God. So like he did in verse 1, Paul needs them to know, this is important, that they know he is on an assignment from God, or as Jake and Elwood said, we're on a mission from God, right? God has commissioned Paul to serve Christ's church, uh, something he refers to as the body in verses 18 and again in verse 24. God gave Paul the responsibility, some translations say the stewardship or administration of the affairs of the church. And this passage shows us a couple of ways uh, that, that Paul does that. The, the first item, if it, I was thinking of it in these terms, Paul's job description, right? So the first item on Paul's job description is to preach the word of God. So not every translation uses the word preach. Uh, New American Standard does. Uh, NIV says uh, to present the word of God. Uh, New King James says to fulfill the word of God. New English says to complete. Uh, In all of those, the the Greek underneath our English translations means to cause something to abound or reach its full potential. Uh, That's what's underneath this. And in this case, that means that the word of God would be proclaimed in a way that it helps it do whatever it was intended to do. 
Uh, In verse 28, Paul again uses the word preach or proclaim to say basically the same thing. Paul understands that uh, one of his main responsibilities is to speak the word of God to everyone. Uh, That is what the assignment is that that he's been given uh, by God. Now, for most Christians today, uh, if you were to ask them what the word of God is, what would their answer be? You don't have to be shy. Go ahead. The Bible. Bible. Yeah. Uh, And because of of verses like 2 Timothy 3.16, which tell us all scripture is God-breathed, we understand that the words contained in the Bible are God's words. So when we read the words, word of God, uh, we think the Bible. We think God has given Paul the responsibility to preach the Bible. And we're not entirely wrong in thinking that way. But I want to point this out. When Paul uses the term word of God, he nearly always uh, qualifies uh, uh, that term as uh, the message about Christ. For Paul, the word of God is is this power that is embodied in the the gospel message of Jesus. Uh, Last week, we read from uh, John chapter 1, where uh, in in his prologue to the gospel, John says that the word is Christ himself. So I want to sort of expand your thinking here when we, when we read these words, word of God. Jesus is the living word of God. And if we continue on in Paul's long sentence here, we'll see in verse 26 that Paul himself gets closer to defining what he means by word of God. He says, it's the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations but has now been revealed to his saints. This is how he defines the word of God. And then he goes further in defining this mystery as Christ himself at the end of verse 27, which we'll look at in a moment. So yes, we are to preach the Bible, God's inspired words written down for us. But let me, let me say it this way. When uh, one of you tells a friend that King Jesus has come as God in the flesh to to die in our place, to to restore us to right relationship with God. When you tell your friends that by placing their trust in him as their king, they can be in God's forever family for eternity and they will experience in the here and now what Jesus refers to as abundant life. When you do that, you've preached the word of God. You've proclaimed the word of God, even if you don't have a Bible in your hand. Okay? Hopefully that helps you understand what what Paul is talking about here. Okay? Again, it's important for us to preach the Bible, uh, but the goal of that must always, always, always be to proclaim that Jesus is the king. And if it ever devolves into merely knowing a lot about 
the Bible, we've actually stopped preaching the word of God. Okay? So preaching the message about Jesus was a, a primary part of Paul's job description. Verse 28 tells us that the preaching will include two things, both instruction and warning. Uh, he says in verse 28, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So far in our study of Colossians, Paul has spent considerable time announcing that Jesus is king. Uh, and he's spent time instructing these Colossian Christians about how he became king. But we'll also see Paul admonishing them, warning them, that if they don't continue to surrender as G- to Jesus as king, bad things are going to happen. Uh, following Jesus will, will lead them down one path, a, a path that we'll look at a little bit in a moment, and refusing to follow Jesus will lead them down a destructive path, something Paul is going to address later on in the letter. Sometimes after one of my sermons, uh, I'll get a comment uh, that that says something like, wow, that was kind of harsh. And when I, I mean, I don't think of myself as a harsh person. So when I, when I press them on, what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, it rarely has to do with my tone. It, 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 it doesn't have to do with the fact that maybe I came across as angry or, or mean. It, it usually boils down to this. It usually boils down to issues of whether or not Jesus is Lord in all aspects of our lives and the consequences of what happens when that's not true. Um, And I guess, yeah, that can sound harsh. Um, It is this or that, right? Um, In my heart of hearts, um, just how God has wired me, I want to woo people to Jesus. I really do. And, and, and most times, I believe that is a, a good approach, at least for me, that it, that it works. But there are times that I have to warn people that, that if you do this, there are consequences. Um, if, if, if you don't follow him, this, this is the path that you're on, the destructive path that you're on. And it seems uh, here that Paul felt the same thing and in the fact that it was a part of his divine calling to, to preach about Jesus, uh, to, to teach them about Jesus, but also to warn them what happens if you don't follow Jesus. Um, so there's a second item on uh, Paul's job description that seems to be related to this divine assignment given to him by God. And it's kind of a strange one. It, it, it seems that Paul sensed that um, suffering was a part of that job description. Uh, Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel. We, we see this in verse 24, in verse 29, uh, again in chapter 2, verse 1. Um, So let's look at each of those. Uh, First of all, verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. 
if this verse doesn't make you kind of do a you know, kind of a what was that? Um, some you're not listening um, because there are some things in here that should make you go, huh? Yeah, exactly. Um, and this verse has actually bothered Bible scholars for millennia, right? What in the world is Paul saying here? Um, first of all, let me address what he's not saying. Paul is not saying, he is absolutely not saying that Jesus' suffering on the cross was not enough to pay for our sins. Okay? He is not saying that. Uh, and how do we know that? Because throughout the New Testament, we, ha- we have statements that make it clear that Jesus' death on the cross was enough. It was sufficient. Maybe most simply and, and clearly in Jesus' own words from the cross just before he died when he said, it is finished. And the Bible tells us that, that God raising Jesus from the dead was proof that the penalty had been paid. The, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. One time. It was enough. Uh, something else that's, that's just interesting, if, if you're into uh, kind of understanding uh, some of the, the Greek terminology here, the Greek word under uh, our word that, that Paul uses for affliction or suffering here uh, in verse 24 is never, ever used anywhere else in the New Testament to refer to the crucifixion. So that's not what, what Paul is saying, okay? Jesus' sacrifice for our sins was not lacking in any way. But if Paul doesn't mean that something in Jesus' sacrifice was lacking, what does he mean? And this is what theologians and Bible scholars have, have puzzled over for, for a long time. Uh, I found this uh, quote from uh, an old uh, commentary helpful Um, William Hendrickson says this, the enemies of Christ were not satisfied. They hated Jesus with insatiable hatred and wanted to add to his afflictions. But since he is no longer physically present on the earth, their arrows, which are meant especially for him, strike his followers. It is in that sense that all true believers are in his stead supplying what, as the enemies see it, is lacking in the afflictions which Jesus endured. Christ's afflictions overflow toward us. Um, That is one explanation for what Paul uh, is saying here, and I I found it uh, somewhat helpful. Now, we've talked about suffering before, uh, and it's never fun. Uh, but the fact is, and I've said this before, Christians should expect suffering. Um, we should not expect that following Jesus makes everything okay and we have no problems in life. The Bible just doesn't teach that. Uh, Jesus himself promised it. In John 15, he said, if the world hates you, remember they hated me first. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. 
We know that before his conversion to Christ, Paul had been one of those who persecuted Christians. He hunted them down and and tried to throw them in prison. Uh, in, In one case, he did worse. He participated in the murder of Stephen. But once Saul, who became Paul, had his encounter with the risen Jesus and, and was called into ministry by him, God said that he would show Paul how much he would have to suffer uh, for his name, for, for the gospel. So Paul knew this was part of the deal from, from the beginning, right? And as it turned out, Paul suffered a lot. Second uh, Corinthians eleven twenty three to twenty five give us a partial list. This is just a partial list of some of the things that Paul suffered. He said, "I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stone." Um, Paul knew suffering. But he goes further than just enduring suffering because he says there in verse 24 uh, that he rejoices in it. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 5. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 4 uh, where, where he says that we can actually rejoice in suffering because we're participating somehow in Christ's sufferings. What we see though is that Paul is so committed to this assignment that he's been given by God, that he finds joy in it, even even in the hardest parts of it. Uh, Verse 29, Paul says that he is laboring for it. And the word he uses here for for labor is a word that means hard labor, working to exhaustion for the sake of the gospel. Okay? Uh, I, I read this week that uh, Martin Luther often fell into bed at night without even removing his clothes because he was just so exhausted. Uh, one of Dwight Moody's biographers said that this man who was known for his eloquent and lengthy prayers would sometimes roll into his bunk and pray, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. That's it, you know. (laughs) Some days I feel the same way. My wife's laughing. (laughs) I was talking with some of our retired pastors this morning. They said amen to that. They've, They've felt that. Paul worked hard for the cause of the gospel. And then when we turn the page into chapter two, Paul states again how hard he is struggling Uh, another word that he uses. So suffering, laboring, struggling for these new believers. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me in person. And the word, uh, the Greek word underneath our English word for struggle is agona, agony, agonize. Paul's sense of calling to the message of the gospel is so intense that he agonizes over it. He, he exhausts himself in working for it. And as we've seen, he suffers plenty 
for it. But apart from being told by God that he should do this, uh, we can see in these verses that, that Paul had a goal here. Um, why, why does he do this? And this takes us to the second theme that we see in this passage, the goal of Christ's work through Paul. Um, there, there are two clear statements about Paul's goal uh, for the Colossian Christians, uh, each with a couple of subpoints. Um, and these goals, these stated goals, uh, are, are every bit as much for us as they were for the Colossian Christians. So it's important this morning that we try to understand them. The first really clear goal shows up in verse 27. Uh, Paul leads up to it in verses 25 and 26 when he says that God gave him the task of preaching the word of God, which we saw was the message about Christ. He says that the message about Christ was a mystery that had been hidden for ages, but is now being revealed to the saints. And then he says this in verse 27. Uh, he, He further defines that mystery by saying that God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is, here it comes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He wants them to understand this. See, from, from the very beginning, God had a plan. And, and Paul says here it was a mystery, not a mystery in the sense of some puzzle to be figured out or something that was secret that only an elite few could, could know about. Uh, God had actually been talking about this mystery since way back in Genesis 12. It's, it's uh, actually kind of hidden in what God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. But, but as the story unfolds, we can see it more and more clearly. God told Abraham that through his descendant, all the nations of the world would be blessed. They'd be blessed. See, God's plan was, was always, 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 always to include the Gentiles uh, as part of his people. We see it in Genesis 22, Genesis 26, Genesis 28, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 60, uh, through some of the other prophets, Malachi, uh, Micah. It's, it's all over the place in the Old Testament scriptures. But no one saw it. No one realized that the Messiah, remember that's what the word Christ means. That's the, the Greek word for Messiah, Christ, Messianic King, We can read it that way. No one thought that Messiah would actually be for the Gentiles. And not only is he the Messiah for the Gentiles, Paul says that the glorious wealth of this mystery is that Christ, or the Messiah, is in you. The Spirit of Jesus actually lives in those who put their trust in him. And this, this glorious treasure, this glorious wealth of this mystery gets even better because Christ being in you is a down payment for your future glory. Luke uh, twenty four twenty six tells us that after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father, he entered into his glory. 
Philippians 3.21 says that when Christ returns, he will take our weak, mortal, broken down bodies and turn them into glorious bodies like his. Friends, he is our hope of glory. Seems like that ought to get an amen, but I don't know. So that's first, uh, Paul's first goal for the Colossian Christians, that they would understand somehow the riches of this mystery that God has included them in his plan to have a people who would swear allegiance to King Jesus. Now we can, I think, kind of take that for granted. We have the Bible, which explains this. And if we read our Bibles, we see it. Uh, we, we don't have this mindset that, oh, Messiah is for somebody else. I guess I'm kind of out of it, right? We, we understand some of this. But for these Colossian Christians, they needed to know that they weren't second-class citizens in God's kingdom. They were always a part of his plan. So that's the first goal of his work, uh, uh, Christ's work through Paul. Uh, the, the reason that Paul labored so hard and suffered and agonized in this assignment, he wanted them to understand this. But the second reason was that they would become mature in Christ. Look at verse 28. Paul says, We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is a reason that he preaches about Christ so that these uh, Colossians would become mature in Christ. Uh, Paul's teaching, as we saw earlier, included warnings as, as well as instruction, but it wasn't for the sake of making them smarter about the Bible. The goal of his teaching was so that they would become mature in Christ. And uh, for me, this just underscores the importance of, of discipling new Christians into mature Christians. It's, it's not enough just to get someone to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. We, we have to help them grow into mature Christians. So what does that, what does that look like? Uh, what, what does it look like to be mature or grown up in Christ? I was thinking, you know, there's, there's certain things that we expect out of adults, right? Uh, those things aren't always present. Uh, some older people are still learning to adult. You know some of them, I know. Um, but there are things that, that we expect. Uh, one psychologist, Jeffrey Arnett, uh, has boiled it down to what he says are, are three basic things that an adult should be able to do. Uh, the first is taking responsibility for yourself and your actions. Well, I think that's pretty good. Um, second is making independent decisions. And third, financial independence. Um, now, he's got subpoints under all of those, and so there's a lot more that we would say are part of adulting, uh, but that's a good start. But when Paul talks about becoming uh, mature in Christ, he gives some specifics about what that would look 
like. So we're going to turn to chapter 2 and look at verse 2. And there he says, my goal, again, this is why he's, he's suffering and laboring and agonizing over this. My goal is that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and that they may have all the riches that assurance brings in their understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the first thing I think that describes a person who is mature in Christ is their unconditional love for one another. Well, while Jesus made it clear that we're to love our enemies as well as our friends, Paul, it seems, sort of backs up and says, you guys got to start with loving each other. How many of you know that, that too often uh, we demonstrate the least amount of love to those who are closest to us? I don't know why we do that, but it seems that we do. We fall into that. Whether we're taking them for granted, well, I, I don't know why, but we do that. We know that this was an issue in some of the churches that, that Paul wrote to. It may have been an issue here as well. But a mature person in Christ has got to love people with the unconditional love of God that is known as agape. We've got to love each other. We just got to. The second goal that Paul delineates for them is is that they would experience the rich assurance of knowing Christ. And again, it's wordy, but if if you were to boil it down, I think this is what he's saying. Um, Paul longs, longs for the Colossians to understand in an experiential way uh, that the rich assurance that comes from the knowledge of this mystery that we've already talked about, the mystery of Christ in us and our certain hope of glory. Paul wants them to know Christ is enough. And and not only just enough, he's everything. All the treasures of wisdom and, and knowledge are found where? In Christ. There's a rich uh, assurance that comes from understanding that. Um, You know, there's so many things I don't know. I'm dumb as a post sometimes. There's so many things that I don't understand. So many. But here's what I do know. Everything that's important for me to know about this life, I mean, all the things that really, really matter, they can be found in Christ. I believe that. I believe that. One of the great quotes from St. Augustine in about 400 AD is when he said, Our hearts will be restless until they rest in Christ or until they find their rest in him. 
there's, there's this calm assurance that comes from knowing Jesus. I mean, really knowing him. Verse 4 gives us the next description of someone who's mature in Christ. Paul's goal for them that was that they wouldn't be deceived. This is one of the main reasons that Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians. People are trying to deceive them. There are people trying to tell them that Christ isn't enough. People trying to tell them that as Gentiles, there's more that they need to do to really be a part of God's kingdom people. Some people were trying to take them down a path of spiritual mysticism. That The Colossians were being faced with all kinds of lies. And it's interesting because Paul calls these lies uh, persuasive. He says they sound reasonable. Uh, NIV says fine-sounding arguments. New Living Translation calls them well-crafted arguments. You see, Satan's lies are are rarely uh, in the form of something that's just like so shocking to us that that causes us to react. He's, He's far more subtle than that. In the garden, he said to Eve, did God really say you couldn't eat from any of the fruit on any of the trees? That's not what God said. God said you can eat of everything except that one tree. Don't stay away from that. That's what God said, right? Satan's lies often sound plausible and and believable. And Paul doesn't want them deceived by Satan's lies. He's going to go into more detail about that later in his letter. Lastly, verse 5 shows us that uh, as mature believers in Christ, uh, Paul wants to see them disciplined and strong in their faith. Uh, Some translations say well-ordered. Some Bible scholars believe that this is language that... uh, Paul has borrowed from uh, the military, sort of a military metaphor. Um, he wants them to have a strong wall of defense against uh, false teaching that was, that was coming at them, that was threatening them. And he wants them to be able to take the good news of Jesus to the nations, which is something that he praised them for. Uh, so he's, he's not yelling at them here. He's saying, this is why I'm doing this. So that you'll have a strong line of defense and uh, that, that uh, you would take uh, the gospel to the nations, that the gospel would spread. That's what we saw in verse 6 in our first week. Knowing Christ, being in him and having him in us gives us a strong defense against false teaching and gives us a strong offense as the good news about Jesus bears fruit. And, and spreads around the world. This has been a lot to take in, and I, that's part of the. I know some of you are note takers, and that's why I've tried to put some of this uh, on the on the screens there. Uh, I think it's helpful to understand uh, Paul's passion for writing uh, to this young church. It's helpful f- for me as a pastor to understand why he's doing some of this. But mostly, I think we need to wrestle with what it looks like to be mature in Christ and ask ourselves the, the question, do, do my goals 
match God's goals? Do we understand how rich, incredibly rich, uh, this mystery is that, that Christ is in us and that he is our hope of glory? Uh, do we know that he is in us? Do you know that? Do you know he's in you? And if you don't, wouldn't you like to? If, if, if you would like to and you don't know how to do that, come and talk to me, please. I'd hate for anyone to walk out of this place this morning and not know how to know the wealth of this incredible mystery of Christ living in us and him being our hope of glory, future glory. If you're watching from home, you send me an email, ring me up on the phone, something. Talk to a friend that you know uh, follows Jesus. Uh, but take care of this, right? Secondly, are we doing uh, what we need to, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? And let's get real specific, even in our own fellowship here, this, this local expression of the church. I got to tell you, some days I am so incredibly proud of our people here and how they love one another. I really, really am. And in other days, I'm reminded. We got a ways to go, right? We got we to gotta keep after this. Uh, if you don't feel that love for your brothers and sisters here or a brother or sister here, oh, you need to start praying that God would give that to you. It's one of the best ways I know to overcome uh, bad feelings towards someone else. You start praying for them and start praying that God would give you a love for them. Actually, as you start praying for them, I believe God just automatically starts giving you a love for them. I have experienced that in my own life. People that I thought would be forever enemies became forever friends because of that. Thirdly, do you have assurance in Christ? Because if, if you have truly surrendered your life to Jesus and are trying to follow him, you can have assurance that that's enough. You don't need to worry about adding this thing or that thing. Christ is enough. And I believe if we will all strive toward this kind of maturity in Christ, we won't be deceived. We will be well-ordered and strong. Uh, in our faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this, is, this has been a lot uh, to take in this morning. And uh, we prayed at the beginning that you would help us to understand. And I pray here at the end that you would continue to speak to us, continue to help us understand what you have said here. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, point out the areas that we are not yet mature, the areas that we need to grow in. Uh, and, and mostly, uh, speak to us, teach us, show us that Christ is enough and that in him are all the riches, the treasures, the, the wealth, 
of knowledge and wisdom. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.